Judges 6, please, if you'll turn there. When I was growing up at carnivals, we had carnivals that we went to, and I grew up in Finley, Ohio, mostly a town of about 40,000, so not some major metropolis, but we had the Hancock County Fair and the, like a carnival atmosphere, and they had, and you maybe have been there, and they still have these things around, I think, somewhere, amusement parks perhaps even, or fun houses, but they have the carnival mirrors. You ever seen those? And you stand in front of them, and they make you look really stretched out this way, or unfortunately really stretched out this way, or really big head and little, little it's, it's a distortion, right? It's a distortion of what you really look like. If you looked in a real mirror, you would see accurately who you are. But the fun house mirror, the carnival mirror, they're usually curved mirrors, convex, is it? Yes, convex and concave, different ways of bending and curving the mirrors to give you a distortion uh, a really not an accurate view of it at all. Quite funny, actually, uh, to stand in front of it. It's pretty comical, and, uh, but it's not accurate. You can't really see yourself in that mirror for who you are. Um, in our world today, our world is filled with, can I say it, identity carnival mirrors, um, identity distorted distortion mirrors. Um, if you look into one of them, it, it, you'll see yourself, but it won't be accurate. It, it's going to be contorted. It's going to be twisted. It's not going to be God's view of who you are. So tonight, if I had a message title, it would be seeing yourself in God's mirror. And, and I believe more than any other time, perhaps in quite a while, especially in this com- country, is that we need to come back uh, to seeing ourselves as God sees us, especially when it comes to his word. Um, in those metaphorical mirrors... There are a number of them. Let me just list them off for you. A natural mirror, a physical mirror, you know, that's just looking in in the mirror and seeing yourself and only seeing the external of who you are. So a lot of people build their identity off their DNA. You know, do you have great hair? Do you have, you're skinny, you're beautiful, you're, all those things that make up your physical makeup. We even talked about that a little bit tonight, your looks and your personality. Are you funny? Are you winsome? Uh, and all those types of things. And so people base their looks, and people do all kinds of bad things, actually. Um, you know, starve themselves, cut themselves, throw up, uh, and make themselves do all those things on extreme cases, obviously. But a lot of people do that, and they are obsessed because that's who they think, that's what they think their master identity is. There's the cultural mirror. There's the natural mirror. There's the cultural mirrors. It's you are what the world system says you are, and that's why... You know, girls' magazines that should not be read are selling by the millions. Um, and I could give you all the titles, and you know them as well. And they have people on the covers that you wish you looked like and, and, and all the things. You don't know anything about their life and how miserable they might be or the fact that they might be on the verge of suicide. But nevertheless, um, culture says that you should look this way or you should have this type of success. So the cultural mirror says, oh, yeah, you know what? You are something if you have this kind of a job and you make this kind of money or your intellect is this high and your IQ is that. And, and today, the culture says, you know, it's the color of your skin that may be the major part about who you are or the possessions of the wealth and the, and the things that you have or the abilities that you have. Maybe because you can play an instrument or you're really good at singing or you are awesome at sports. All of those things play into the picture of people and how they see themselves. So there's the natural mirror, the culture mirror, there's the sociological mirror. And that's just what people tell you who you are. I've had people tell me 30 years down the road 
that their dad or mom or their parents told them you'll never be anything and you'll never do anything and you're awful. And all these years later, they amounted to that pretty much because they believed that lie. So the power of what people say you are and tell you who you are, it matters. Your friends, your family, we learned tonight, who's the number one impact in telling you who you are outside of God? Family. So what your mom and dad tell you who you are, it matters. What your siblings say, your friends, your close friends, your, your boss at work perhaps, um, and on and on it goes. And then lastly, perhaps so you might overlook it, but certainly not true, per- personal mirror. Um, your personal mirror. You decide who you want to be. And today, that can have devastating effects. I mean, you can try to decide who you are and you don't like who you are or who God made you to be, and you can try to change it to the point if you're a guy, you can think you can change yourself into a girl and vice versa and so forth and so on. So, I mean, today, who you are and who you think you are can be life-changing for sure. So, obviously, in all these mirrors, the natural mirror, the cultural mirror, the sociological mirror, the person, they all have shades of truth. It's not when you stand before a distortion mirror that you're not standing there. You are standing there, and that is your face, and those are your features, right? That is you, but it's a distorted view of you. And so our culture has a lot of lenses, and you can look into them. It's not because there isn't any truth at all that you're not good at sports, or you're very smart, or you could be very beautiful, or you have a really funny, good personality, or all those things. Those all might be true, but they become distorted, and twisted in your life when they're not the main idea of who you are. So tonight I want to tell you, as far as master identity goes, the one that controls all the other parts of your identity, you can only understand who you are if you look in the mirror of God's word. Now that metaphor, God's word being a mirror, is used in two places. We don't have time to delve into them tonight, but you might want to on your own. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says about revelation, he goes, and we look right now into a the mirror of God's word, I'm paraphrasing, dimly. In other words, right now we have some revelation of who God is and what things will be, but right now it's only partial, it's dimly. We can't see everything clearly, but someday we'll have a full revelation, and I believe that to be the canon of Scripture, that revelation from the beginning of Genesis to Revelation, that's all we need to really understand who God is and who we are to be. So he says the mirror of God's word is his revelation to us, and we can see God's reflection through the Bible. The other usage is James 1.23, which says the passage about being a hearer and a doer of God's word. He says, if you look into the mirror of God's word and go your way and forget what manner of man you are. In other words, it's possible to look in the Bible and look into God's word and, and then see what you are and then go away and not be changed. And, and, and that's what I don't want to see you happen tonight in your life or your kid's life. I, I want you to look into God's word and I want you to see that he's going to tell you who you are. And he really is the only one who has the right to and the only, the only one who has the proper wisdom to do so. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, I don't believe in Jesus just because I, can, I know him in the Bible. That's true, but not only that, but because by Jesus, I see everything else in life. So I I used it to our purposes tonight. I wrote this. When I look into God's word, not only do I see Jesus, but also by Jesus, I see everything else. So how important is it tonight 
Question number five, to connect your identity to Jesus. Because let me tell you this, not only can you not see yourself accurately if you're not properly connected to him, you can't see anything else properly. And so you get twisted and contorted views of life and how things ought to be in all kinds of areas because you're not seeing them through the lens of who Jesus has made you out to be. So our big idea tonight is only God through his word can accurately tell you who you are. So let's unpack Judges 6 and see from Gideon's life if we can find out a little bit better from how God tells him who he is so God can tell us who we are. If you read the text, and we don't have time to do all of Judges 6, but in the first six verses, you're going to find that Midian has been invading Israel for seven years. And they're not looking, the Midianites are not looking to take over politically, and, you know, take over the country. They, all they want is economic exploitation. What, what that means is, is they want to come in every year about the time the crops are all ready to be harvested, and they want to steal all their food. <laughs> and they have the power and the manpower to do it, and Israel can't stop them. So imagine for seven years, you're barely making it. And that's why you find uh, Gideon threshing wheat in a cave. I mean, normally you do it outside so the wind can take the chaff, and that's how you do it. Nobody does it inside in a cave, but he's hiding out because he's barely squeaking out an existence for himself and his family, and they're barely making it. So here he is hiding out in a cave all by himself, being extorted every single year by the Midianites, and he doesn't have any recourse, or so he thinks, to change his circumstances. So in the next verses, verses 6 to 10, God wants to remedy Gideon and Israel's circumstances with the Midianites. But believe it or not, listen to this, before he sends salvation, and he's going to do that, he sends a sermon. And in verses 6 to 10, God sends a prophet to his people, and he wants to preach a message. Now listen, there's a good and very important principle I want you to get tonight out of this. And here it is. Before you can conquer the enemies from without... You have to conquer the enemies from within. Do you know why he sends them a servant before he rescues them? Because he wants them to see why the Midianites are allowed to take all their food. He wants them to see where their idolatry has taken them to. He doesn't want them just to cry out and say, Now, oh God, I haven't had any time for you, but now, God, I really need you. I haven't really been that committed at all to you. But I really need you. And you know what? He doesn't want them to cry because they're upset about their circumstances. He wants them to be upset about what caused their circumstances. And so you know what he does? He sends them a sermon first. And the sermon is, if you'll look at it with me, he says in verse 9, I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave, them your, gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites. But they have. They're bowing down to the Midianites and the Amorites' gods. But you have not, listen, underline it, but you have not obeyed my voice. In other words, you know why you're in the situation you're in? It's not because God, as Gideon would say in a few verses, if the Lord is with us, then why has he forsaken us? Because where are all the miracles he did when he brought us out of Egypt? And all the things he did, our fathers told about, where is it? In other words, here's the number one thing that we do. And Gideon was guilty of it. You know what it is? That when we look at our circumstances and and the troubles that we're in in our life, our, our immediate response too often is this. It must be a sign that God has forsaken me. That God really isn't doing what he ought to do. 
And we blame God instead of saying and asking God, show me how in all these difficulties I'm facing, how you want to shape me and form me and my identity to be more like you. We don't think that way enough, not nearly enough. And so a common problem is, is that we don't understand that God wants to conquer the enemies inside of us before he's going to go after the enemies outside of us. We like to fixate on external problems, and God says the external problems are to point out your internal problems. Let me show you what I mean, i.e. marriage. I've counseled so many people, the, number, the three top problems in marriage are, and have been forever, money, sex, and communication, and not necessarily in that order. And I've had everybody, uh, so many people come into me in, over all these years, and I talk about with their marriage, and they think money, sex, and communication, and they want to talk about those things as if those things are the issues. And they've got all these things about she said, he did, and we don't have this, and they buy the money, and they're not frugal, and, and they're, they're selfish, and, and he just sits there bumping along and watches TV, and I'm trying to talk to him, and then I could go on and on. And I said, you know what? Those are expressions of your problem. Those are just results of the problem. And they think that if I tell them magically, one, two, three, here's an outline, let me give you, here you do this, and this is the technique, and I'm going to give you a methodology, and if you do this, and no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to change on the inside. See, you have idolatry going on, expressions of it, because you're selfish, and you're going to want your mate to be this way, and you're not willing to help and change and be a part of the solution, and you're not going to change your life. See, those are all things that you want more. So I want this more than I want God, and, and, and you're not living for God, but yet you think it's money, sex, and communication. Teenagers, I've seen people raise their teenagers and their children, and they think that the worst thing that their children could do is to be worldly, to be immoral, and all the bad friends that they choose, and no desire for God, and they, they don't know what to do with it. And they don't say, my kid really doesn't want to read his Bible at home. I really have to force them to come to church. They're not interested in spiritual things and the things they like, the music and the, ugh, and, and the kids they want to hang around with. And, uh. Can I tell you this? Those are all externals. Those are all expressions of the internal problem they have. And the problem is, is that God doesn't have the place in his life and heart that they should have him in. That's the problem. But until you address that, that's why it is almost, I find it to be very difficult to convince people that the most likely solution, problem is that your kid's not a believer. And they want to think because they came to church and know all the facts and who Jesus is and understand the Bible to some degree that that's not the case. And I'm saying you can't judge it by externals. It's internals. Trials and suffering. You lose a loved one. You have difficulties coming, you have problems in your life. But we, we deal with those, but we don't ever think that perhaps, in some cases, maybe not as many as others, but that maybe it's the bitterness that God wants to weed out of your life. That you didn't get the thing you wanted, and you prayed for this and God didn't do it. And the level of selfishness and the discontentment you had. And see, God, maybe he brings you to the suffering and the trials. You know why? Because he wants to form you and shape you. And he wants to mold your identity into who you want to be. He wants you to be. So I don't think it's an understatement to say idolatry is the biggest enemy of living out your identity in Christ. And here's what he says. You know why you're not living out your identity? You did not obey my voice. 
if you'll look on the screen, I think it's going to be on there. That phrase, not obey my voice, is only used three times in the book of Judges. Once in our text, and the other two are in chapter 2. And that's the start of telling you the cycle of the Judges. If you read the book of Judges, it's they serve God, and they worship Him, and then they fall away from Him after the judge dies, and they go into idolatry, and they have other gods, and then they repent after a while of getting tired of all their circumstances, and they come back to God, and the whole thing recycles over and over again through all the 14 Judges. All of them. That's it. It's a cycle over and over again. And so when the cycle is about to be, begin, here's how God's word explains it in chapter 2 and verse 2 and chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, you did not obey my voice. And if you did, you would have broke down their altars. Verse 2. Verse 19 and 20. You wouldn't follow other gods. And so every time he uses this little phrase, you did not obey my voice, it has to do with his people being idolaters. Now, please listen and focus here. The insidious thing about the idolatry in the book of Judges is, is that it was syncretic. Do you know what that means? You ever seen synchronized swimming? You ever heard of that? So, in something that's synchronized is that a, different things are molded together as if they were one. So you got, let's say, four ladies who are swimming in synchronized swimming. And they're all different people, but they're all doing the exact same thing as if they were one person. They're, it's identical. And when you apply that to religion, to be syncretic in religion means that you take the God of the Bible and you add, you add the God of the Amorites and the God Baal and Astaroth. And if you need crops and you come to Baal because he's the God who creates thunder and lightning and rain. And if you need you know, a baby, you go to the God who's of pleasure and sexuality and pray. So, and if you need Yahweh, and he's got a specialty, you come over and ask him. And, and here's the insidious part about their idolatry, is they didn't come out and completely abandon God altogether. It wasn't that. Formerly, they still worshiped God. But when they needed something else, something they thought that another God could do better, that they really wanted, and maybe God of the Bible wouldn't give them, <laughs> they went after that God. And so here's what the Bible says, that in Gideon's own backyard, his dad had, a, had an altar to the Baals. So, you, so you listen to this. So the crops grow, and they're stolen by the Midianites. So God, I'm going go to I'm gonna go to the God of Baal because he controls thunder and lightning and the rain, and so maybe we'll get more crops and later crops, and we'll grow different ways because that's his specialty. And so if you don't get the thing you want from the one God, you kind of go and get to the God who specializes in it. And see, that's the, that's the insidious part. That's what the golden calf was. It wasn't when they're standing at the bottom of Mount Sinai and God's flaming fire and lightning and clouds and Moses up there. It's not like somehow they forgot that God's there. You couldn't forget God was there. This tells you how our heart is. The seed above all things. See, they were in, Mount Sinai was staring on the face. They were so, the land trembled and they, they couldn't even look over there or get close. And they cried out, God, you speak to Moses. Don't speak to us anymore. We can't handle it. So at the, base of the, at the base of that mountain, that's all that's going on up there, and they can see it. But at the bottom, they're putting all their gold earrings and stuff together and making a golden calf. It wasn't that. It wasn't that they got rid of God altogether. He's right there. It's that they made another God because that God was too holy. That God was too unapproachable. So they had to make another one in Moses' absence so they could deal with the problems of him not being there. So they made a golden calf. And then they say this, and this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. That's a mockery of God. You can't add other gods as if God's part of a pantheon. 
He's not. And so what is this passage in Judges 6 when you look at it as a whole? You know what it is? It's a clarion call to commitment and the lordship of Jesus or God in everything. And, and here's the principle. You will never grasp your identity, nor will you have the ability to live it out properly as long as you have God plus anything else in your life. He, you can't add on to him. You can't put something else with God in order to properly give you the happiness that you're really looking for. It can't be God plus this, God plus a baby, God plus marriage, God plus some money, God plus some pleasure, God plus some entertainment, God plus some health. You can't add on anything. And, and to be able to be in the place where God can tell you who you are, you have to confront the idolatries that are in your heart. See, they didn't abandon worship of God for idols, but they combined worship of God with idols. We'd say it this way in American Christianity. Hey, I worship God on Sunday, but I worship all the other gods, including myself, Monday through Saturday. So you come to church and you say, God, you're the greatest thing. I haven't forsaken you altogether, but you practically forget about him. You have nearly no, next to no time for him in prayer or the word. I mean, really. He doesn't really inform your decisions and your goals and your values and your priorities. Not at all, really, if you're honest, for some. And so here's what he says. You didn't obey my voice. You've been listening to all the other voices that are going on in your life. So God is formally the God you work, but you know, truthfully, you've, got, you've added other ones into the situation that you find yourself in your life. So we worship the gods of security, power, wealth, comfort, safety, not ever realizing that all of it is unbridled self-indulgence. That's really what it is down the, the root of it all. So to find out who we are, and how to live it out, the first step we have to take is the eradication of all of our idolatry. We have to get rid of it, and we have to be devoted to God alone in every area of our life and get rid of the gods that we're favoring that are right beside him, like it was at Sinai, to make him the only one that we want, that he's supreme in the affections of our heart. So when he says this, you've not obeyed my voice, that means there are other voices. In the text, if you took the time to read it like I have done this week, you'll find that the other voices that were probably whispering in Gideon's ear to tell him who he was, was the Midianites. You're nothing, you're weak, you're insufficient, you can't beat us, you'll always be a slave, you'll never be on top, you're nothing, you're nobody. Midianites have been telling him that and everybody in Israel for seven years. He had to have heard that voice pretty clear. That's the cultural voice. The sociological voice he's hearing, his own dad's an idolater. God is no good. He isn't really with us anymore. I'm, I'm sure he didn't come up with that forsaken me bit all by himself. I'm sure he heard it from his dad and the mantra he heard and his family was influencing him. So he's probably forsaken it and, and he, he probably used the altar of Baal right there in his own backyard. So his family were influencing him. That's what's part of his identity. And then he had personal views. If you read the text in verse 15 of chapter 6, He's trying to convince God about how he can't be the deliverer. You can't use me. <laughs> Here's what he says. Because my tribe is the weakest of all the tribes of Israel. And in my tribe, which is the weakest, don't forget. Let me say it again. I'm the least one. So weakest one, least one. See how he sees himself? Because he's been listening to the Midianites. He's been listening to his culture. He's been listening to his family. He's been listening to his friends. But he hasn't been listening to God. So when God says, you have not obeyed my voice, the, the flip of that is, but you have listened to and obeyed all the other voices. And he had. And he didn't know who he was anymore. And you know where he found himself out? Hiding in a cave. 
scraping by. That's where that identity leads. So God comes to him, and God's called the angel of the Lord seven times, and he's called the Lord God. This isn't an angel, it's a pre, it's a theophany, or perhaps more accurately, a Christophany. It's a pre- a existence of a pre-existent view of Jesus. It's before he ever became a man. And Jesus comes to him, and here's what happens. All these other voices now are silenced, and Jesus is going to tell him who he is. And God's word comes to him, and listen to this, and, I, and here's what the, I want you to put these two phrases together. He says this, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, chapter 6, verse 12. <laughs> Can you imagine Gideon in the last seven years hiding out and what he's all gone through, and God appears to him and says, you mighty man of valor. That must have blown him away, although, you know what his name means, don't you? Mighty warrior and destroyer. <laughs> he thought the name was basically a wrong choice from the beginning. God didn't, but he did. Now listen, can I tell you this? I've read this text over and over again. When God tells him you're a mighty man of valor on that day, do you know what changed in his life on the outside? Nothing. Write it down. Nothing. The Midianites were still invading. He was still afraid. Right? His dad still had an altar in his backyard, and his family were idolaters. His nation had lost their connection to God almost completely. All of that, and let me tell you this, and he was still the weakest, and he was still the least of all. None of that changed. But you read after this section to the end of this chapter and beyond, and what you'll find out is nothing changed, but everything changed. Everything changed. But you know where it changed? On the inside. On that day, Gideon believed God and said, today's the day I choose to let you define who I am. And it changed everything on the outside. See, identity change and formation doesn't go from outside in. It goes from inside out. And our kids need to hear that. And, and, and I looked it up. Oh, mighty man of valor. You know it's only used three times in the whole Bible, in the Old Testament? One is Naaman, the Syrian, in 2 Kings 5. Another one's a guy you've probably never heard of, Elida, in 2 Chronicles 17. He was under Jehoshaphat. He was in charge of 200,000 men, and he was a mighty warrior. I mean, so if we had the goat, you know, greatest of all time, if you had goat warrior competition in the Old Testament, there are three guys, and Gideon's one of them. David was a man of valor, but not a mighty man of valor. He didn't get the extra adjective. You got three guys going for goat warrior, and Gideon's one of them. But look at him. Look at him in the cave. Look how afraid he is. He looks like a goat, but not the kind I'm talking about. He looks like anything but the goat, Right? But he is. You know why? Because he's just figuring out, oh, this is how God sees me. This is God how sees who I am. And so at the end of the chapter, he gets a nickname. He goes from Gideon to Jerubal. You know what Jerubal means? Baal destroyer. I mean, he had just been defined by Baal, worshiping Baal, falling down before Baal. His life was ruined by Baal, and now he's the guy kicking Baal destroying Baal. Why? How, how did the reversal happen? He finally found out who he was when he let God tell him who he was. Do you know what your identity has to come from? Let me tell you, your God identity, when God tells you, here's what it's based on, I'll close. Who God is and what God's done. 
Look at verse 8 and verse 10. Here's how God preaches. The preacher comes and here's what he says in verse 8. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. See, that's an identity statement from God. Verse 10. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. See what he says? The first thing you got to know if you're going to live out my identity, this is who I am. Because God's identity shapes your identity. Only when you know God and are connected to God and all that he's about. See, when you know God, his identity shapes your identity. Now, I'm going to only say this in passing. Having a God identity be your main identity doesn't mean you have no other parts of your identity. You know, if you read Galatians 3 and other places in the New Testament, listen, when you become a Christian, it doesn't stop. I don't stop being a man, and I don't stop being white, and I don't stop being whatever else. I'm a father, and I'm a husband, and I'm a a pastor. Those are all parts of my identity, And, and you can tell me all about your parts. I don't stop having those parts. But here's what being a Christian means in Christ, that my relationship with God is my master identity, and it reorders and reorientates all the other ones. So now my main identity that controls all the other identities is being in Christ, and that controls all the other ones. But see, the problem is, and this is where the problem with our kids come in in our own lives, see, that's not true for them by and large that their main identity is how they look or how smart they are and the education or how good they are at sports and they can't see past and that controls their God identity. So if sports come up and that's the main thing, then God has to be pushed to the side. Why? Because he's not the main identity. He's subserving it to the other ones. And when we do things in our marriages and our, our families to foster that, we just push them that much further away. To the point where they think at times when they graduate high school, this is seemingly the pattern. They don't need him at all anyways. Because I've been taught my whole life, put everything else in front of him. He's not your main identity. Find it in this and this, and you are beautiful, and you can do this, and wow, you're great at that. Look how smart you are, and you gotta go. And and that's the main identity. And God becomes subservient. You know what that's called, right? Idolatry. Who God is, secondly, what God has done. Same passage. Look at verse 8 and 9. Same verses. God tells you who he is, but look what else he tells you. Verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and all who oppressed you, and I drove them out. In verse 9 it says. And he delivered you out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. Verse 8 and 9. See what he says? This is who I am, but look what I did. See, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. And I brought you out of that. And I gave you Canaan land. And I drove out all those guys, he says. See what I've done? So your identity has to be connected to God. So remember those two little phrases? The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. You will never be a mighty person of valor. Your kids will not, he'll never say, almighty teen of valor, almighty dad of valor, almighty you put it in there, unless you tag the first part on first. You have to be connected to him. He has to be with you. You have to be making him the Lord of your life in every single area. There can't be Jesus plus. If he's going to be with you, he is going to be God. He is going to be the one in your life that's the center of everything. And when that happens, can I tell you this? When we find out who God is and he tells us who we are, we can, listen to this, he'll, we'll know what he can do and now we can do what he can do. You know how I can see it? Look at the interchange. I don't have time to say it all. Verses 9 through 14, 
It says, the hand of the Egyptians, the hand of all oppressed you. And it says, Gideon, you go, because you don't have to worry about the hand of the Midianites, the hand of the Midianites. And here's what he says, I took care of the hand of the Egyptians. Now, if you go, you can do what I do. You'll be able to take care of the hand of the Midianites and all their power. And here's what he's saying, you, if you follow who I am, you'll be able to do what I do. And we need a bunch of teenagers, a whole army of them, and young people growing up, and, and, and adults in our church who will say this, God, you tell me who I am, because when I finally find that out and live it out, I'll be able to do what you do in my life. And I won't be spending my time in caves, hiding out. I'll be doing things for God, not because I'm so great, because I am the weakest and I am the least, but that's how God works. He doesn't work through our strength. He shows his power in our weakness. See, your identity in Christ will not only define your past, but it will determine your future. You know my story. I was a sports idol. That was my idolatry all my life. And when I broke my arm so severely trying out for public school baseball that it almost came out of my skin and I had to put it in a cast and I couldn't play ball, my whole life changed because I came to the realization that I'm not what ball I can throw. You know who I really was? Is what God I serve. I would never come to that on my own unless God broke my arm. And I believe that he did. It changed my life. I switched from public school to Christian school. And I found my identity in Jesus. And it changed everything. Everything. That's why I love Faith Christian School. Because that is an instrument that God mightily used in my life to change my life. And can I tell you that? That choice to let God define me instead of my friends or everything of my life that I wanted to be in sports, it determined my future. It determined my future. Everything. I am a completely different person than I would have been, completely different, because I found my identity in God. God not only gives you your identity, but he also gives you the ability to carry it out. I love that. So when God changes your identity, and you go, what, you want me to do what? He says, don't worry, because you know what the second thing he tells him, and I'm done? He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And later on, he says, did I not send you? Lord, show me the fleece. Show me something. He says, I will be with you. He says it again, because you know what it is? It's not you that helps you live out your, it's God. God will help you live out your identity. He helped Joseph. He helped Moses. He helped Joshua. He helped David to live out their identities when they thought they never could do the things he asked them to do. And your kids can stand up at school and not be part of the crowd, and they don't have to do all the things everybody else does, and they can be different, and they can be glad to be different, and it's possible to live that way, and you can too, if you let God define you. It's time, isn't it? It's time we start looking in God's mirror. The hall of faith in Hebrews 11 includes a lot of people, but you know who gets a run-by mention? And time would, is not there for me to tell you, Paul says, that I could tell you stories of Samuel and the prophets, and he says, and of Gideon. And then you know what he says? People who sent the flight, the armies of aliens, and out of weakness were made strong. You know who that is, I think? Gideon. God can take you in your weakness and your leastness, and he can take your kids, and he can give them an identity that will change their life for his God, honor, and glory. But you know what the first thing we do? We gotta get all the idols out. He's gotta be supreme. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Gideon. What a wonderful narrative that shows us what can truly happen in someone's life when they let God define who they are. Father, may every day you give us grace and strength and humility to let you define us. It'll change our past, our present, and our future. Do that, Lord, that we might live in your story and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.